It's not called the snowstorm for nothing. Let me tell you. Um, my guest today is Dante King, and uh, I had him scheduled to be on the show previously, and this is the rescheduled of that. But at the time he was originally scheduled, it hadn't been asked at a, and debated and answered at a national level, do we live in a racist country? Uh, yes, we do. We live in a racist country, and here's, he's here to school us. By the way, Dante, in the green room, I see that I no longer see your video. Oh, there you are. I'm not bringing you on yet. I was just concerned that we got disconnected. So Dante will be with us shortly. He is a native of San Francisco, California, and he's the author of the new book, The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. You know, I said he's here to school us, and he certainly has the credentials. He's an adjunct assistant professor of medical education in the Mayo, Mayo Clinic uh, College of Medicine and Science. He serves as guest fac faculty at University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, where he has lectured for years, and he officially consults as a legal expert scholar and witness concerning matters regarding race and racism. Uh, Dante, Dante was recently instrumental in codifying the new law in California, People versus Finley, 2023. His academic disciplines include Afro-realism, critical race studies, African-American studies, whiteness studies, anti-blackness, American history, African-American studies, African-American history, and the ways they have shaped American culture and institutions. So that's who is coming up. I wanted to remind you, if you are watching live and you make a comment, I can curate it onto the screen just like this. And uh, I also want to just give a shout out if you uh, value this programming and you want to support it, you can do so for as little as $3 a month by going to patreon.com slash promohomotv. Uh, if you subscribe for $3 a month, I give you a shout out on the show. If you subscribe for $10 a month or more, your name goes into the closing credits. And uh, one of our live viewers, a good friend and supporter of the show, Rock May, says Omni hugs to you, Nicholas and Dante. So uh, we've got live viewers and a very hot topic on this snowstorm. So you're going to, going to want to stick around because that's what's coming up. Promo Homo TV is all about empowering you, our communities, and our world. Shouting out to my media partners. Pink Media, amplifying Promo Homo TV across the Twitterverse with their hashtag I Love Gay campaign. GayDesertGuide.LGBT And KGay1065 Palm Springs, available worldwide. Ask your smart speaker to play KGAY. It's as simple as this. We will save our democracy in 2024, or we will watch the United States implode. I'm Nicholas Snow, and this crisis we face is why I have launched The Snowstorm, a nightly Hot Topics panel discussion show in which I will curate your social media comments into the show, and we will connect the conversation to action we can take to save America. Watch The Snowstorm nightly at 6 p.m. Pacific at promohomo.tv.
I just want to repeat the title of Dante King's book again, The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. Let's welcome to the show uh, Dante King. Hi, Dante. Hello, and thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you as well. And uh, I met you at uh, the Brothers of the Desert Annual Wellness Summit that they have here. I'm an ally of the organization, and you were a featured speaker in their one-day program. It was very powerful. And uh, I feel like I'm making progress as an ally, Dante, because a lot of my a lot of people that I know, even people of color, when I ask them, do you think we live in a racist country? Uh, a lot of them just say, no, not all people are racist. And in the past, I might have gone straight to that level of defense. But with the the schooling I've been trying to trying to do for myself, I just think that the une, the unequivocal answer to the question, do we live in a racist country, is yes. I've never asked you that question. I'm assuming by the title of your book that you would say yes. Uh, do you think we live in a racist country? We absolutely live in a racist country. And I think most people answer that question based on um, very simple, um, limited definitions of, of racism. We typically historically have defined racism as something that someone is explicitly doing to another person. Um, so it's always at the individual level and it's always explicit and extreme, so to speak, like using um, an epithet or um, taking an action against someone based on their skin color. And I think that's a very limited way of looking at racism. But if we were to take that question and ask, have all of our institutions been founded by white men and, and founded by upon um, white logic? Um, and have, work, have they worked for the benefit of white people? Have they been structured um, to both develop and enforce laws and policies, economic um, policies that worked in favor of white people and against non-white people and, and most severely against indigenous and black people, then we would get to yes. And so in that answer, in my answer, all of us serve white supremacy because we're socialized to serve white supremacy, which i.e. is Eurocentricity, um, which is another synonym for American. Um, and that, that like Eurocentricity sets the standard, is the standard for our culture. Um, are we, have we all been socialized to um, understand and look at non-European groups through a Eurocentric frame? Absolutely. Um, and there is a lot of historical knowledge to uh, prove that. And when I, from, for me, I'll just say this, when I was able to locate a lot of what I um, write about in my book, uh, it blew my mind because I then had to come to the reality that not only as a black presenting person, an African-American person, have I been set up to serve whiteness and white supremacy, but I've also been um, trained to be anti-black 
And everyone in this culture has been trained to be anti-Black. And that's a very nuanced um, conversation as well. Wow. Um, tell, tell me about uh, how this book came about. Um, did it start as something else and then you ended up with so much information and you knew it needed to be a book? What was the process? It did. So, you know, my journey began as probably most people. I, I started just as an avid reader, um, a lifelong student, and I began to find all of these laws uh, during the colonial period across all of the, the, the colonies, the 13 colonies that um, constituted, um, that, that really Europeans, English people and others that they classified or characterized as freeborn um, were not only targeted if they were in contact with black people, but there were like very vile actions that were taken to organize the culture and to, to organize people throughout the colonies. Um, and I also found actions that were taken against uh, African people, uh, particularly, you know, the black women had to tithe for themselves. They had to pay a tithe for themselves, whereas English uh, young girls and women did not have to do that. Uh, there were laws that um, basically sanctioned that if African people resisted and fought against the terrorism that they were experiencing, that they could be murdered with impunity. And so the Casual Killing Act of 1669, there's another law in 1672, an act for the suppression and apprehension of Negroes, mulattoes, and other uh, runaways. And that law constituted that you could kill and murder Black uh, people um, all Black people, whether free or enslaved, and that Black uh, bodies would be worth 4,500 pounds of tobacco and cask. And so there were all of these laws that continued to um, provide the cultural, legal, moral right to just murder and rape Black people. Um, and so I began to think about, as these things are being curated and facilitated legally, what is happening psychically? psychologically to not only the English people who are erecting and implementing these laws and the, the beneficiaries who are like your everyday European slash white people who are able to then take it upon themselves to rape black girls and women, young black girls and women, indigenous girls and women um, and to murder people, but even black people who were overseers, who oftentimes, you know, for their to save their own lives, had to give up other family members or had to give up friends. How is this shaping our cultural relationship to Eurocentricity to white people and also the relationship that we have with black people? And so I began to follow that path throughout every decade over the course of um I would say 38 to 40 decades from the early 1600s into currently where we are. Was this part of formal academic involvement in, in, in your pursuit of education or independent of education? It wasn't I mean, independent an, of official education. That's right. So it, it was, that's a good question. So it was not initially. And then it morphed into that once I 
begin to document what I was reading and what I was finding. Um, and it came through a culmination of books, different papers, like I mentioned, um, legal resources at the federal level, the state level, the colonial level, um, a combination of um, uh, state, uh, local, state, and federal level court decisions. Um, for example, you know, we learn in school that Black people gain the right to uh, vote, that we gain citizenship, it, but you know, through the 14th and 15th Amendment, 1868, 1870. What their right to own property, to buy property, uh, because they, there was a lot of intimidation. And so these white extremist groups, there were many who emerged during this period. Well, in 1876 and 1883, the United States Supreme Court outlawed both of those force acts that were implemented to protect Black people. And you have a litany of different lynchings that take place across this country. And so one connection that I was able to make is that, wow, you literally have the United States Supreme Court facilitating mass lynchings and murders of Black people because they overturned both the Force Act of 1870 and the Force Act of, um, my apologies, and the Force Act of 1871. Um, and so oftentimes we're guided to think that progress is this linear thing that we're just on the, the path to achieving. And that is just not the case at all whatsoever. And so in my studies, I was able to, to then understand just how not only have our institutions worked in favor of white people, but there are um, infinite procedural actions that have been taken against black people to make sure that we never maintain what we achieve and keep what we've been able to uh, amass for ourselves, both as uh, as individually as well as a, as a community, um, and that we're always trying to prove our value and worth against white ideas that we just don't measure up. And so I begin to look at this as um, psychopathology rather than just ignorance or bias or you know even using the word racism because that does not give this conversation enough weight and enough detail and so but terms like legal psychopathic and sociopathic black genocide that will you know i get it that's yeah. very different than the word racism absolutely yes uh, so for my viewers, I'm speaking with Dante King. He is the author of The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide, and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. My conversation with him continues after this.
this particular shirt is the crux of the Hopeful Sexual Campaign, and it is designed to inspire authentic human connection while simultaneously combating sexual, sexuality-based shame and stigma. And the really cool thing is, if you go to hopefulsexual.com, it takes you to an Amazon store where this shirt is available in all sorts of styles, sizes, and colors. And I use the revenue to fund promohomo.tv. So check it out. I think everyone, almost everyone is a hopeful sexual, don't you? I'm a hopeful sexual Dante. I just want you to know that. <laughs> oh, are you muted? You muted yourself. Oh, there sorry. we go. I was saying I love that. I have to have one of those shirts. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, there was uh, in the session where I was with, uh, uh, you know, I was there as an ally. So maybe, I don't know, 5% five, 5 of the attendees of the conference, if that were non-black people. And especially in your workshop, I felt like it was my responsibility to basically listen and learn. And uh, one of the things that I was struck by, not, su not surprised by, but struck by, is that there's, there's this really ongoing effort for black people to leave the United States and go to other places in the world where they can live open and free lives. And uh, they, of course, anyone that could do that, you know, needs to have the means to do it. But um, what what I got out of that is, yes, the the <clears throat> the arc toward justice is, you know, is long. It's not going to happen overnight. These changes that need to happen this racist country, this uh, uh, the way that it's been structured it's as if it cannot be solved in the lifetime of any of anyone who's alive today in, in, in a sense, or can it? No, and I don't think that it can be solved at all because when we break down the benefit of, of racism, the benefit of anti-blackness, it serves a tremendous purpose here in the, in the United States. It serves a purpose for not only white people, but it serves a purpose for um, all other non-black groups. And even there are some of us as black people who benefit from anti-blackness. And so what do I mean when I say this, right? Um, so when we look at what I refer to, and I got this from a, a psychologist by the name of Dr. Amos Wilson, who talked about the psychodynamics of racism, the psycho political aspects, the psychoeconomic aspects of racism. And so I begin to say, well, what are the economies of Black pain? Or what are the economies of Black genocide? And the economies of Black genocide um, include, but are not limited to, low-wage labor, um, continuing to rationalize, justify, um, and assert that people are in the predicament that they are in, or communities are in the predicament that they are in, 
because of what they have done or not done in terms of personal responsibility. And that is a myth. It is delusional. Um, it does not take into consideration, at least for Black people, all of the ways in which we are villainized through um, the American cultural um, psyche. And so it's going back to my point, low wage labor, there's also the devaluing of young black children, children continuing to measure their worth and their value um, against a Eurocentric and or collective white body politic in terms of education, how they learn, their levels of, of intellect, what we consider um, in, uh, in, in, sorry, intellectualism um, or what we consider education. Um, and then taking those students who are mistreated many times in classrooms throughout this country, uh, who, are, who have been disenfranchised in communities where they lack resources, not only do they lack socioeconomic status, but their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have suffered from economic disenfranchisement and displacement. And then saying that those students are not smart, grading them in ways that are um, unjustifiably inhumane, while many times white children are getting the benefit of the doubt. I point this out in my book where you have the one white guy who says, you know, he became an educator for 17 years, but he didn't know how to read or write, right? And how he just continued to be passed through school because his teachers maintained a, a cultural confidence and belief in his ability. Um, so we have low wage labor, we've got um, dehumanizing our children through the educational uh, institute in, industrial complex. We've got the prison industrial complex. And these are whole industries where people are employed in building retirements and collecting paychecks to disenfranchise, to continue to disenfranchise black people. And many times they are rewarded for it. Then we have the industry of uh, misdiagnosing black children with eight, what, autism, AHD, ADHD, all de defined by white Eurocentric behavioral standards in terms of how we expect children to behave um, versus how they should not behave. And Dr. Um, it was, I think it was Dr. John Henry Clark in the discussion with um, Albert Clegg that I shared in the workshop with you all, where he's saying that we teach white children and black children to hate uh, being black, to, to hate black people. And so when I begin to evaluate how all of these things are working and also how they've been economized, it led me to understand that during the mid 20th century, there's a shift. It's like, okay, let's, let's you know, we move from the enslavement of these people but let's talk about how we can still economize and benefit, not just economically, but psychically and politically from their disenfranchisement. Because every other group in American society gets to then derive their worth based on how well they're doing in reference to both white people and black people who have been situated as a permanent underclass in this country. Um, so. so I can understand why you lecture on this topic all over the place. Um, uh, Elk Whistle, also known as Aaron Terry, he's in the D.C. area. I'm loving the conversation and vibes tonight. This is how we maintain democracy by addressing issues like racism transparently and truthfully. Truth hurts, but lies can kill. Um, Rock, 
Rock at some point asked the question, do you mean reverse racism? So is there anything that you've talked about recently that would fall under the category of that? He also wants to know where to get the book. And I just want our viewers to know that the book is available uh, among other places on Amazon. Uh, you, you can just go to Amazon, search the 400-year Holocaust, uh, or you can go to promohomo.tv and find this link. Uh, and I also posted it into the chat. Uh, so um, do you believe in a thing called reverse racism, Dante? No, not at all. Um, I cringe every time I hear that. Um, That's a black man answer asking, by the way. Oh, I know. I saw. Yeah. I think um, the problem with language like that or, or terms such as that is that um, racism as an as a as a system and also as a culture has been created and developed by white men. Um, and, and white women who benefit from it and who have created institutions that were founded upon um, their own thinking, their own cultural affect, their own belief systems, um, our legal institution, our educational institution, our economic principles have all been shaped by that. And they've also had the ability to enforce them amongst themselves, but, that, but not only for themselves, but amongst and um, as it pertains to every other group in this society. And so Black people, African-American people, as a collective group, have never been in a situation or a predicament to be able to control our own institutions. We've never developed our own institutions. All of our life-sustaining institutions, all of the, all of the life-sustaining institutions that we abide by um, are controlled, have been developed and controlled by white people. And so we're not able to control collectively what white people um, get to do, where they get to go, what they get to have. Um, and so there can be no, um, in this way that race, <laughs> there can be no reverse racism um, when we look at it from a holistic standpoint in terms of uh, the power dynamic. I'm glad Rock asked the question, and I'm sure he really appreciates the opportunity to learn your perspective. Um, you talked about the prison industry, and literally this week there was a soundbite of a politician from a southern state who was complaining that the parole system, within the parole system, you have people who are, who are, uh, um, have less serious convictions, and those people are involved in work programs and the people with more severe convictions aren't allowed to access the work programs. What was happening because of this early parole is the people that were eligible to participate in the work programs were being let out and given their freedom. And this uh, politician was actually saying, we can't let the good people out. We need them to work. I mean, literally, he was saying this. So... I'm totally getting uh, where you're coming from on that really recent example of the uh, industrial prison complex. That's um, right. <clears throat> and that, that comment goes right to the tenets that this country was founded upon. This is a, a country that was founded upon the cultural, institutional, economic tenets and principles of exploitation. 
And so how can we get more labor for cheap or for free? So um, we're at a half an hour. We can go a few more minutes because I'm in control of the show. Uh, one, one of the, I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this question, but basically what I've gotten from you in both your talk that I attended and our interview is basically this country is very effed up and I'm getting that from your perspective, there's basically nothing we can do about it. And, and I'm, I guess, is there anything that you can say to give hope? Are there, is there any action you can recommend uh, for people that want to be part of some sort of solution, which I, I don't know if you think there is a solution. For sure. I think that, you know, at a local level, everyone can try and do their part. For instance, I worked with men in prison for over six, seven years now. Um, and I've given a lot of donations. I've, you know, helped write um, for people to ha get, get out on early release. Um, but in terms of, you know, this country being effed up, it, it is effed up, but it's not effed up for everyone. It's, it's very effed up if you're black. I, you know, I can only, I can really speak from that experience based on my lived experience, as well as, you know, the research that I've done. Um, but this country is great for some people. I mean, I know a lot of white people that I'm around, um, that, you know, that I've been around throughout my career, throughout my lifetime, friends that I have, who go about their lives just fine, not thinking about anything that I've just shared with you on this show. And life is wonderful for them. They don't have to think about it, right? It's and I, privilege. Yeah, and I think most of us, um, you know, if we're being honest, have that. There, there are things that we're not necessarily interested in or don't take notice of if they don't directly affect us. Um, but I do think that this country is effed up for black people um, I do not believe here. I do believe that it is fixable, that it could be fixed. I don't think that there is a moral will to fix it. We saw what happened in 2008 when this country took a downturn economically. Um, they rushed, rushed in and, and put together a stimulus package, which I call affirmative action for white people or welfare for white people. Uh, they just have a different name for it. They saved the economy though, right? We saw again what happened with COVID. Here's another pack, here are some other additional packages, welfare, that the packages that they put together for white corporations, um, white business owners, um, predominantly, where people got to take advantage of paycheck protection grants that they didn't have to pay back. And so this country has a history, um, politically, governmentally, of fixing and responding to the things that they deem important. And, but yet what I also found in my studies is that there has to be a, typically a political will uh, for white people to move and or do anything um, that will help to remedy or aid issues that, um, that pertain to people suffering or non-white groups suffering. If there is no political reason or political uh, will, it most likely will not happen. And so when we think about conversations around reparations or even just conversations around how to, um, you know, enforce laws that were meant to protect black people against racism, 
we don't, that's not happening. And we're at a point right now where we literally have white people who are trying to pass legislation to ban books, to make sure that classes on African-American studies can no longer be taught um, in our institutions. If you take this moment, if you take where we are right now and you liken it to what the Nazi party began to do to um, uh, Polish Jews, Austrian Jews in the 1930s, uh, we're in the same moment. We're, we're, we're in the same moment. They begin to burn books. Um, they begin to do all of these things that led up to them organizing millions and millions of human beings and executing them. So I don't believe that we're um, headed in a positive direction. And when I look at someone, for example, and I'll end with this, but like a Donald Trump, who I believe reflects all of what America values, uh, all of what America values, he, he reflects um, it, the whiteness, he reflects the cisgenderedness, he reflects the, the maleness, he reflects the positionality, the celebrity, the economic success. He, he's a mirror for American culture. And being convicted as someone who committed sexual assault that one judge defined as rape and is still able to amass a substantial following and be in the running to become president of the United States, I ask you, I ask every fellow Black person and person that has been marginalized by American cultural institutions, is this a country, is, are we in a moment where you feel like you are safe or that we as a collective group of people who have been marginalized are safe in this country? They say that past is prologue. And if you are answer, if anyone were to answer yes to that question, they are not taking into consideration our past uh, in, in the past regimes of, of um, severely psychopathic and sociopathic racist entities that have engineered the most dire of circumstances uh, historically. They're not paying attention to it. Well, I believe that you will have captured the attention of anyone who comes across this broadcast. I admire you for the work that you're doing. I would love for you to come back. Uh, anytime it would be helpful to you and what you're doing, please contact me and let me, you know, help do what I can. And uh, I really admire you for who you are and what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, viewers, this was a blizzard of a snowstorm. And I thank you for watching. And, uh, I have more hot shows coming up. Uh, by the way, uh, some of you may know that last night at 6 p.m. I premiered a tour of Palm Springs' hottest new sex club. If you've never been into a gay sex club, you can go inside now on my recent episode. Dante, it's had uh, 1,200 views on YouTube alone since 6 o'clock last night. Wow. I'm going to yes. check it out. Oh, okay. All right, everybody. Have a good night.
Oh. 